Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Salah El-Hatab, CEO of Gravity Climate. He and his team help industrial businesses and their supply chain partners manage their carbon footprint by measuring emissions, decarbonizing their operations, and promoting their overall sustainability efforts. So hi, Salah, how are you? I'm doing well, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Now, I talked a little bit about what you and your team do and, and where you specialize in my intro, but what should people know about your professional journey to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, I've been spoiled to be working in the physical industry for the past seven years. Uh, immediately prior to working at Gravity, I was at a company called Samsara, where I led a couple of their business, a couple of their business units products, uh, starting in fleet safety, so everything from uh, improving driver safety on the road by uh, detecting if they were falling asleep at the wheel or harsh driving in other capacities. Uh, and then I helped expand their business out of kind of vehicles and into facilities with their connected sites offering. Um, thereafter, I spent a, lot, a little bit of time with Eclipse, which is a industrial venture capital firm, as we kind of look broadly at the industrial decarbonization space. And that's where Gravity was born. Um, I've been passionate about the climate crisis in my free time for so long, uh, and being able to marry that to a lot of the carbon intense industries that I had the luxury of working with was kind of a dream come true. Uh, and we're now kind of a year into it, and I'm excited about the journey that's behind us and more excited about what's ahead of us. Now, given that this sort of work tends to be a collective, collaborative type of effort, I'm curious because I'm hearing from more and more guests here on the podcast that they're re-engaging, especially at in-person events. And that sort of opened the door back up to that creative inspiration, insights, ideas from other people. Uh, have you been out as well? And, and if you have, I'd be interested to know what you're hearing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's worth noting that when we weren't meeting face-to-face -face or when we were just having kind of one-on-ones throughout the past couple of years, uh, it was very easy to find yourself within the echo chamber that confirmed <laughs> yeah. your thesis was beautiful. Uh, and now we're, we're spoiled to have been able to go to a few conferences. Even last week, we were at two separate conferences at the same time, which is just kind of shocking to think through given the void over the past few years. Uh, a little bit of the team was at a conference called Procore's Groundbreak, which is an incredible construction-centric event. And uh, we had the luxury of speaking to over 100 companies about their decarbonization efforts, their work towards embodied carbon and otherwise. And it was amazing to see where two years ago, people may not have been talking about climate nearly as much within the industrial mm -hmm. sector. We're now talking about ISO standards, right? It wasn't just kind of a question of whether or not they should get involved, but complying with something so standardized and, and kind of internationally recognized. So uh, extremely enthralling, um, and even more so to see significant kind of economic transitions around th this climate effort. Now, that's interesting. It actually provides a great transition to one of the things that I wanted to get to ask you. You know, you talked about the fact that 
the climate has been a passion project for you in different ways for a long time. Uh, and you just mentioned in some of your observations from these conference conversations that now you have things like ISO standards. It's becoming far more regulated. There's a lot more reporting. What have you observed about that overall progression from something that companies might voluntarily choose to do because it's important to them or they they view a, a brand perception advantage associated with it to something that's a little bit more regulated and therefore subject to oversight? Yeah, no, it's, it's worth noting that the pressure to get involved here is coming from so many different directions, as you kind of called out. Uh, there's, of course, the regulatory pressures that you mentioned at the tail end of that, and it's worth calling out that um, the EPA, for example, has had the greenhouse gas reporting program in the U.S. for over 10 years already, uh, and it's been targeting the heaviest emitters in the United States. Uh, but I think what's even more exciting transparently is just the market and consumers driving a lot of behavior evolution here. Uh, organizations ahead of any SEC regulation, ahead of any kind of further mandates that you have to disclose, have already felt pressures from uh, consumers who are increasingly impacted by the climate crisis, whether it's because they're impacted just because of the spike in gas prices or because um, they're unfortunately in the wake of potential natural disasters, such that they care that the companies they work with or the buildings that they enter uh, have some sort of, of climate consciousness. Um, that works its way all the way through supply chains. So you're finding that construction companies uh, are seeing in bids that they're competing for uh, a necessity to disclose on the materials that they're procuring or the operational footprint of the assets that they're going to bring on site. Uh, or in supply chains of manufacturing, they're asking about where people are getting their aluminum uh, or how they're actually um, you know, producing or casting that aluminum if it's more natural gas intensive or electrified. So the voluntary markets are... Uh, while a little bit less standardized, uh, are increasingly exciting to me uh, because they indicate consumer and kind of market demand, uh, which survives transparently more so than even regulatory and legislative demand. Now, we can certainly agree that this work is important. And it's interesting that you bring the consumer perspective into it because I have a feeling a lot of these programs have existed internally at companies for a long time. But as consumers start to demand it, they're not just looking for sort of the thumbs up or the wave across the room. They expect some type of accountability. And so they're looking for numbers. Yeah. So even if a company has been monitoring their carbon impact, their climate impact for a long time, they've probably kept that data relatively close to the vest. As they start to open those numbers up and communicate them externally, probably in part to respond to consumer demand, what should they know about how other people might be using that information? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm about to give you a very long-winded answer, so I'm going to try to keep it as... as <laughs> like, good, that means I've asked the million-dollar question. Yeah, no, it's, it's such an important one, um, and it's going to probably introduce a couple threads for us to keep pulling at. But um, the biggest thing I like to tell companies is that any absolute number is actually completely uh, innocent in isolation. Um, we're actually not as passionate about just... Uh, intensity metrics compared to your peers, although those are definitely relevant, uh, we're more excited and passionate about the curve of your emissions footprint. So uh, one of the things we like to do most with our customers is convey to them that even just measuring and finding out that number, independent of how high or low it is, is a massive first step. 
Uh, and any step that you take thereafter is extremely opportunistic, uh, even if your emissions footprint is larger, because it means that you actually have a significantly larger surface area to find reductions and to show people progress. Uh, and so in terms of perception, when you disclose that number, surely there will be somebody who latches on to just the absolute number uh, and will look at the companies that are the largest and see that there's a correlation between the largest companies and the largest emissions more often than not. Uh, but increasingly, the narrative is more about science-based targets, right? Uh, how are you actually reducing that footprint percentage-wise year over year? Uh, and how are you actually thinking through kind of the benefits of reducing your footprint, which is where we get particularly excited um, because so much of this has been potentially kind of projected through the lens of activism, when a lot of what we're actually doing with customers is building resiliency into their operations. It's thinking through how we can actually uh, make them significantly more uh, even cost conscious uh, as they start to see volatility in energy markets that are uh, dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, and generally our, our pitch to them is one, don't be worried about the absolute number. And two, uh, action, which is what people get most passionate about here, uh, is actually often business pragmatic and aligned with your bottom line. You know, and it's so interesting because I, I have a very similar conversation to this one oftentimes about supplier diversity, right? It's sort of a, another leg of that ESG stool that companies are so focused on right now. And to your point about any isolated number, I jotted this down, I like this phrase, any isolated number is innocent in isolation. Um, and I think that's a fantastic point. And it's one that is very hard, especially for procurement practitioners, because we're so accustomed to what's the percent of spend under management, or what was the overall savings number for the year, right? We're used to this sort of one number that everything boils down to. And yet, especially in this leap of faith transition from reporting and tracking and investigating things internally to having larger external conversations, the, the question that I hear people ask more often, and again, this is both carbon-based or sustainability and also supplier diversity, is how do I know if I'm doing well? So where do baselining and benchmarking come into this, both for a company to at least know in advance do I have that extra large opportunity to start chipping away at my carbon footprint? Or, hey, is this maybe a pre-existing advantage that I didn't know I had because I'm a little bit ahead of the curve? Yeah. Where does that sort of initial level set come into the journey? Absolutely. Um, certainly some people will go through the exercise. I, I love this question once again because uh, it pulls that transparently some of the biggest reticence as well as the biggest question mark once you actually generate that number that a lot of our customers and a lot of people in the space immediately come to. Um, but what I get really excited about is actually that, once again, um, that absolute number, while it certainly has meaning, um, is not the thing that a organization should measure themselves against. Um, often it's about practices. Um, and I often use a parallel to the world of security um, and like SOC 2 compliance, right? SOC 2 compliance, uh, of course, tracks how many incidents that you might have had in the security space, but it more so checks your security posturing and hygiene. What processes have you stood up to make sure that you're going to be resilient to security uh, and, and kind of just infractions that might come from without? And in the world of climate, what we like to do with our customers is think, first of all, um, what kind of behaviors do you have set up to be able to regularly uh, and accurately disclose on your emissions? And two, uh, what kind of target setting or at least projects 
elevation are you looking to to start to reduce that number? Uh, and after you kind of come up with a, a checklist, basically a report card of the different processes, you can stand up for an organization to be um, carbon conscious and manage their carbon in an efficient way. That's the number that we get most excited about. What's your kind of overall score on that uh, just process framework? Uh, and if it ends up being that somebody's uh, actual baseline number is significantly lower than the market, um, that's something to evangelize and to be excited about. But the opposite is not something to necessarily lambast, if that makes sense. No, I think it does. Because as you had pointed out, it is a journey, right? And so uh, knowing where you begin is is part of what makes it an honest, authentic, and therefore meaningful journey. And one of the things that I have to think sets these programs and the goals of them up for success is that we're seeing a lot of excitement and commitment and enthusiasm about them at the sea level. So we talked about the fact that you've been back at a couple of events in addition to obviously any virtual conversations that you're having. And so I'd love to get from you your insight at that sea level. What is it about carbon management that's really getting CEOs in particular excited right now? Sure. Um, I'll say that it's a spectrum, but it's all extremely compelling. Uh, from one side of that spectrum being very centric on the fact that public companies are preparing themselves for potential SEC disclosure requirements, right? And that definitely is a boardroom, a C-level, a stakeholder discussion that makes the CEO and the CEFO uh, very tuned into what's happening within the world of carbon management. Uh, on the other end, though, it ends up being that in the private equity space, uh, your investors are demanding this, and at board meetings and at different audiences, um, it's increasingly something that you know you're going to have to speak to. Uh, and in some countries outside of the U.S. even, it ends up being something that um, there are kind of liabilities that are imposed on the C-suite. Um, I'm happy that that necessarily hasn't extended to the U.S. quite yet, uh, but the fact that it ends up being such a uh, kind of financial and kind of stakeholder level concern means that the C-suite cares about it quite a bit. Uh, the exciting thing is that as C-suites start to invest more into operationalizing carbon management, there's been a significant correlation in valuations going up. There's been a correlation in kind of employee uh, attrition shrinking uh, and all the metrics that anybody who's really kind of evaluating a healthy meat company by seem to trend positive as soon as you start to actually elevate carbon management as one of your pillars. So uh, beyond this being something that they feel mandated and necessary for them, they're also seeing that it ends up yielding the business metrics that they get really excited about. Um, so more and more people are coming to this enthusiastically rather than begrudgingly. Now, if, if I work at a company, I'm in procurement, I'm in supply chain and boy, is my CEO excited about his vision and the roadmap that he sees and the impact that he believes we can have. It, it's in my job to take that vision and enthusiasm and operationalize it many times on a global scale with a lot of complexity and economic challenges and supply chain disruptions. What is a realistic first step? So you gave us such sage advice around not getting stuck on one number. Do you have similarly straightforward advice for those directors, VPs within procurement and supply chain that are handed a big ball of excitement and need to turn it into something that can be truly standardized and operationalized for the whole company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at Gravity Climate, we meet people who are transparently on very different parts of their carbon management journey. People who 
just heard about it the other day because somebody in their value chain demanded it from them. Some people who have been disclosing on their emissions for years and are just looking to change the tooling that they're using. Um, and one thing that we wanted to make sure was to meet anybody where they are. Uh, and the good news is we're not alone in that mission for what it's worth, but education materials are such a big piece of that. And so you'll find us constantly generating kind of the, the 101 guides to get people brought on, but that we've also internalized the climate strategy team that helps educate people in the early days, other processes. Uh, and we lean on the multitude of publicly available content that exists in the space, right? Um, this is not something that is uh, necessarily fully to its science stage. There's still gonna be some differing opinions on the best action, but when it comes to the fundamentals, there's so much publicly available information, whether you go to uh, all the new companies that have popped up and are trying to make, uh, let's say, layperson facing education materials, or if you even go to the source, like the GHG protocol, uh, and look at the basic original constitution, which, um, bless them, is decently in, uh, understandable, <laughs> even if you don't have that much of a background. Uh, and so what I would say is uh, I highly encourage you to reach out to the multitude of people who are eager to support you because they'll do it for free. Um, Gravity Climate, for example, will more than happy to educate you even if you don't work with us. Uh, and uh, from there on, um, you can go deeper and deeper. It's a never ending source of education out there right now. It seems like every day there, there's more information for people to learn. And I have to think that's so important. And it, it actually relates very closely to sort of an ongoing conversation within the procurement space, especially, is sort of this idea that do you just have to be good at process and project management, or do you also need to have some level of category expertise? You know, is it enough to know how to negotiate and project manage and run an RFP and then onboard suppliers? Or do you also have to be a specialist in marketing, IT, um, you know, metals, right? And yeah. so it's interesting that you talk about education because there are a lot of value-oriented programs that procurement and supply chain professionals not only are involved in, but play a driving role in. This does sound like one where, while it's not a specific category of spend, it's not focused on a singular industry of suppliers, Having that educational understanding, I have to think is very important to opening your eyes to the areas where you can start to make a difference. Is that fair to say that really having that education up front as opposed to expecting to get it along the way as you walk through the process uh, creates an advantage as well? Yeah, and I, I would say I think that success from an education perspective here is part upfront one-on-one education and part baptism by fire, um, for better or for worse. <laughs> and uh, to kind of make that a little bit more tangible, uh, an example is that, especially if you're in the procurement side of your organization, um, it'd be helpful to get a baseline understanding of carbon management and what accounting in that space looks like. Fortunately, the calculations aren't that complicated. It's more about finding the data and the aggregation that becomes fairly dicey. Uh, and that's where gravity climate operates. Uh, but once you get that one-on-one education, you'll probably stumble upon things like uh, acronyms like EPDs, right? Environmental product declarations, which if you're in the space of procurement are actually available at the material level. And now you're starting to say, I'm a procurement specialist. And as I learn more about carbon accounting and carbon management, this is the specific niche that will help me do my job better, right? Uh, or if you're within the actual operational side of an organization, uh, you'll start to worry about things like, um, how you might be actually generating energy for your machinery, right? Uh, and in that space, it's actually an exciting space for you because you start to see that if I transition away from 
uh, just the kilowatt hour consumption and think about my budget as inclusive of my energy spend, it's actually really exciting for me to think about creative ways to generate energy on site, for example, rather than sourcing it exclusively from the grid. So uh, I would say it's definitely a one-on-one upfront, uh, get dangerous, uh, but the best way to kind of really learn this is to start to apply it to your day-to-day and see how it relates to your decision-making uh, within your specific niche in an organization. And that's when the baptism by fire phase and the true kind of deep, deep education that becomes practical yeah. uh, comes out. Now, last question for you about this. You said the D word, data. And this is another one of those things that comes up in an awful lot of procurement-related conversations. And generally, it's followed by quality and a question mark. You know, we, in different parts of the organization, especially if there's been a situation with legacy systems, data is oftentimes old, not actionable, or simply not trusted, regardless of how good it actually is. What would you say, just very generally, about what you see from a data quality standpoint and how that factors into whether it's benchmarking or baselining or reporting or, or tracking against specific metrics and KPIs. Uh, what is sort of the general data situation in this area? Yeah, um, I think it's more important to be extremely upfront about this than to make any kind of rosy commentary about the quality of data here. Um, because this is still fairly nascent for some organizations, the data sources that people tap to are very varying from looking at uh, financial-based accounting and saying my spend on a certain uh, service like travel uh, just by dollar translating that to emissions to extremely granular even things like CEMs continuous emissions monitoring devices that give you raw data on the actual emissions generated by a mm -hmm. process you could end up seeing that if two different organizations come in and measure you depending on where they source their data from um, they might come out with very different answers um, this isn't necessarily meant to be a plug for us, but one thing that we pride ourselves at, at Gravity Climate is that we go to the most empirical data that we can find. So we're pulling kilowatt hours consumed from submeters, mixing that with understanding of real-time visibility into your uh, grid mix geographically. We're pulling volumetric understanding of the fuel that you're combusting or uh, really tracking down the material sources that you guys are coming from, where they were sourced from geographically, because we know that different countries sourcing materials have very different carbon footprints per ton of that material. Uh, and so uh, I will say that data is increasingly improving. And as we see more standardization in uh, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, I'm excited about us getting increasingly more precise. Uh, but right now, there is definitely a varying kind of quality, depending on where people decide to source their data from. Um, and I think that is going to sound incredibly familiar to a lot of people. I, you know, one of the uh, gosh, I wish I could remember who said it to me. The quote stuck in my head, but the speaker's name did not. Someone said to me, there's two different kinds of companies or executives when it comes to data. There's ones that have a data problem and there's ones that know they have a data problem, <laughs> right? And so it's, it is sort of this pervasive challenge. The more digital, the more analytical we get, we're in most cases, not necessarily finding new problems. We're just finding problems that have always been there or just simply blind spots. Yeah. Um, and so this, it sounds like this journey is very much aligned with all of the other enterprise-wide initiatives that, and certainly this is not relegated specifically to procurement, right? Anybody trying to do anything digitally, your decisions are only as good as the quality of your data. Um, and so it sounds like everything is sort of on the same journey towards improvement. Absolutely. 
Uh, I, I think so. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll add that. First, I, I love the call out that you either have a data problem or, or you know that you have a data problem is, is fantastic. Um, and I'll, I'll add that uh, a way to keep folks honest as they go in and do these carbon accounting exercises, especially if you're a third party, um, I think it's extremely important to think about what happens after you get to that number. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as you detach that from necessarily investing exclusively in offsets or similar, uh, then there aren't any kind of perverse incentives to make that number larger or smaller. Um, and it's worth noting that at Gravity Climate, the action step is all about reducing your operational emissions, which means that you're looking internally on how you can actually yeah. reduce your footprint. Uh, and that's where we get really excited, right? Uh, it makes us focus on getting the highest quality data as quickly as possible, not inflating that number or using as too small of a number, uh, and just focusing on how you can actually take the really exciting, uh, albeit sometimes daunting, next step of yeah. reducing your emissions. Now, Sala, as we start to wrap our time up, I want to ask you a a pair of questions, and and you have a choice. You can answer either one of these. This is the classic way we wrap every single conversation (laughs) on The Sourcing Hero. So I I know because people tell me all the time, they hang in for the answer to this question. So here are your two choices. Either what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or how would you define what heroism looks like in a business context? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. The idea of a sourcing hero immediately triggered somebody who managed our hardware operations and sourcing at Samsara. And I was blown away by the heroism that they exemplified in negotiation. Uh, I couldn't believe the numbers that we would see in terms of uh, the ability for them to show up and stay their ground and was terrified to ever be on the other side of that sourcing. But um, I'd actually rather answer the second question here on what does heroism look like in a business context. Uh, And I think in the context of monumental shifts uh, and when we see true economic transitions, um, heroism in a business context is seeing that I'm getting excited and wanting to be the champion. Uh, And in the case of carbon management, potentially evangelizing or being the founding kind of voice for uh, taking the first steps in this direction. So um, for me, heroism in a business context is not that dissimilar from heroism in anywhere else, which is taking the first step, being the one who isn't second, but rather first. Uh, And it can be extremely terrifying to be potentially out (laughs) in the cold alone, but uh, extremely exciting and in retrospect, something to, to very much honor. Well, excellent insights. I I appreciate your perspective on that. Now, for people that have listened in today that maybe don't know you, would like to connect, or would like to learn more, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I myself am not that interesting on the internet. So you won't find me too prominent on Twitter or otherwise. You can find me on LinkedIn for sure, but you can find Gravity Climate at gravityclimate.com. It's a beautiful place where we're constantly pushing additional Uh, learnings that we have through our blog, as well as making it very easy for you to reach out to our team. So gravityclimate.com, or if you're interested in working with us, sales at gravityclimate.com from an email perspective. Excellent, Salah. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us, every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.